The Anchored City podcast is recorded in Anchorage, Alaska, on the traditional lands of the Denina Athabascan people. Warning, this episode discusses murder and other forms of violence, and listeners are asked to use their discretion when listening to this episode. Anchored City Podcast, where we're connecting with Anchorage's soul through her history, stories, and people. I'm your host, Joel Kiekenfeld. Back in July of this year, Vogue magazine declared, in 2023, we may be living in the golden age of the best true crime podcast. Remember back when there was appointment listening? Those olden days of waiting for the next serial installment may not be that far in the past, but there's no shortage of true crime offerings that have blossomed in the decade-ish since to fill its place. True crime podcasts are so popular that they've even inspired the Hulu show Only Murders in the Building, which stars Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. And while this episode is not a true crime podcast, we are talking about murder and violence. 108 years ago this week, on November 29, 1915, Edward Slumke, a.k.a. Edward Krause, a.k.a. Ole Moe, was extradited back to Alaska. Slumke, known in Alaska as Krause, was arrested by police detectives in Seattle, Washington on November 15, 1915, after a passenger on a steamship he was traveling on recognized him from a wanted poster. He was traveling under the name Ole Moe. The cover of the Alaska Daily Empire, the newspaper in Juneau at the time, on November 16, told the tale. The headlines read, Krause captured, thought to be a triple murderer. Krause sinless, he says. Three believed victims of Krause, and Plunkett probably murdered. According to the paper, it was suspected that Krause had killed Ole Moe, who he was impersonating while attempting to flee southeast Alaska. It was also suspected that he had killed Captain James O. Plunkett of Juneau and William Christie of Treadwell. A Seattle police detective, after a four-hour interview with Krause, was quoted as saying, There is not the slightest doubt in my mind but that Edward Krause murdered William Christie his chief motive being the love he had for Mrs. Christie, whose first husband, John Gasikas, was German and a friend of Krauss, and I expect soon to bring out evidence that Krauss murdered Ole Moe, whose name Krauss was taking. At best, Moe is missing under very strange circumstances. When Krauss returned to Alaska on November 29, 1915, the Alaska Daily Empire continued the story explaining, The alleged slayer is in the charge of Deputy Marshal Frank R. Cook of Skagway and several guards from Juneau. Krauss had first arrived in Alaska under his given name, Edward Slumke, in 1897 as part of the U.S. Army and was stationed in Wrangell. In 1902, he deserted when his unit was deployed to China to fight in the Boxer Rebellion. 
1912, Krauss threw his hat in the ring and ran for the seat in the territorial legislature as part of the Socialist Party. Krauss sat in a Juneau jail cell for a year, during which the newly formed Federal Bureau of Investigation and the U.S. State Department investigated a string of disappearances and suspected murders linked to the one-time would-be politician and army deserter. According to Laurel Downing Bill, the author of a series of history books on Alaska under the title Aunt Phil's Trunk, the investigation revealed a series of disappearances and an intricate pattern of forged property transactions. Authorities found that over the years, Krauss recovered the assets of the murdered men. They also learned that a murder gang run by Krauss at Petersburg was involved in additional mysterious disappearances. However, none of Krauss's victims were found, so authorities had to rely on strong circumstantial evidence to try him. Historian David Reamer, writing in the Anchorage Daily News, notes, Krauss's modus operandi was simple and clever, in as far as one might want to compliment a serial killer. Given the transient nature of Alaska at the time, he preferred victims with no known spouse or children. Hence, there was less chance of a relative searching for their lost kin or pestering law enforcement for an investigation. He also ensured that no one ever discovered his victims' bodies. The dead man's paperwork allowed Krauss to travel anonymously as needed and access the victim's wealth and possessions. His crimes came to light only after he broke his pattern. The end began with a woman. Krauss and William Christie sought the affections of the same woman, Celia Gasikas. In late 1915, she chose Christie, who worked for the gold mine operation on Douglas Island near Juneau. Krauss traveled to Treadwell, a gold mine on the south side of Douglas Island, where he presented himself as a U.S. Marshal named Miller and wove a tale for mine managers that he had a court summons for William Christie. Christie left in the custody of Krauss and was never seen again. David Reamer reports that Celia, Christie's widow, visited Krauss in the Juno jail and begged him for information about her husband. While visibly affected by her presence, Krauss refused to divulge anything. He told her, I cannot tell. Reamer also relays that the year-long investigation convincingly linked Krauss to at least eight missing men. He almost certainly killed more, but the evidence was lacking. But the murder that finally got Krauss sentenced to death by hanging was the killing of charter boat operator James Plunkett. It was a hard case to prove since there was no body and no witnesses. According to Reamer, the prosecution believed they could construct a chain of events wherein the only rational conclusion was that Krauss had murdered them. Given the choice between the two cases, the prosecution prioritized the Plunkett charge with the trial beginning September 22 of 1916. On October 5, 1916, the jury deliberated for six hours before returning a guilty verdict. To this point, in his legal battles, Krauss had acted tough, stoic even. Near the end of his journey, his nerve finally failed him. Upon hearing the verdict, he paled and collapsed in his chair. He recovered enough to shuffle back to his cell under his own power before collapsing again on his cot. After an appeal failed, Krauss's execution was set for May 11, 1917. However, the Krauss story had one more twist. With the sentence of death by hanging looming over him, during the night of April 12, Krauss sawed through the bars of his jail cell and created an 18-inch gap, enough to slip through. At the right moment, Krauss wiggled through the opening and then out an unlocked door into the night. A guard heard the door, rushed out, and fired two shots to sound the alarm, but Krauss vanished. He stole a small boat and left Juno behind. Laurel Downing Bill tells what happens next this way. 
Fishing fleets from every community in Southeast mobilized to block Krause's escape out of Alaska. The mines on both sides of Gastineau Channel closed down and a thousand miners joined in the hunt. While house-to-house searches were conducted, Governor Strong announced a $1,000 reward, dead or alive. Upon hearing of Krause's escape, Arvid Franson, who was away from home working on a boat, became worried about the safety of his family. He returned to his home at Doty Cove. After two days on the lamb, Krause beached his stolen boat in Doty Cove. What happened next was reported in the Alaska Daily Empire the next day, in the words of Arvin Franson. He said, Just as we were sitting down to dinner, one of the children looked out and saw him coming towards the house. Papa, here comes a man, said the little fellow. I told my wife to take a broom and start sweeping on the front porch while I got the rifle, which was hanging on the wall in direct line with the man and with an open window between us. I heard my wife say good morning, but I did not hear any reply. I then stepped into the open with the rifle aimed at him and asked, Are you Kraus? Yes, he answered. His teeth were locked tight and he spoke through them. His eyes were set and glaring and I never saw a more ferocious face on any man. As Kraus answered my question, he half turned towards the corner of the house as if he would attempt to get behind the corner. He had a bulge under his coat, which made me think he had a gun, and I shot. The bullet hit him in the side. I don't know exactly where, as his turn threw off my aim a little bit. As the first bullet struck him, he clapped his hands to his side and turned towards the corner of the house. I shot again. The second bullet hit him somewhere in the head and knocked him clean off his feet. He fell and struck the side of his face and never moved. I straightened the body and covered it up. I then took my oldest girl and rowed out to Grand Island, where a boatload of Indians were on guard and informed them that I had killed Krause, and asked them if they would go to town and inform the marshal. There is more known about the final moments of Krause's life, thanks to Franson's detailed first-person account, than any of Krause's murders. Laurel Downing Bill ends her account of the Krause story this way. To this day, law enforcement believes the extent of Krause's criminal activities, if ever known, would be one of the most startling in the annals of American crime history. And there are deserts that I have yet to cross. And I have dreamed of faraway places where imagination just gets lost. And I would search the wide world over For one proverb that is true But of all the roads I'll ever walk I just, I can't have you On February 28, 1984, the top headline on the cover of the Anchorage Times read Hansen's Hunt Nets 461 Years the subheadlines added, Alaskan fits mold of serial murderer, and deadly sport killed dancers. The Daily News headline read, Anchorage man admits to killing 17 women. The opening line of the story read, An Anchorage baker confessed Monday to killing 17 nightclub dancers, prostitutes, and other women over the past 10 years, and raping more than 30 others. According to the Washington Post, a trooper who helped put Mr. Hansen behind bars told the Anchorage Daily News in 2008 that Mr. Hansen's victims initially included any woman who caught his eye, but Hansen quickly learned that strippers and prostitutes were harder to track and less likely to be missed. 
Hansen pled guilty to four of the 17 murders and was sentenced to 461 years plus life in prison. He died in jail in 2014 at the age of 75. To date, only 12 bodies of the 17 women Hansen confessed to killing have ever been found. One of the bodies was positively identified as recently as 2021, 37 years after it was discovered. The story of Anchorage's most well-known killer, Robert Hansen, is well-known. Hansen, sometimes referred to as the Butcher Baker, was described by a high school friend as just a little bit different from the rest of us. That was a massive understatement. The Daily Times reported prosecutor Frank Rothschild outlining Hansen's differences this way. When asked why he killed, the Iowa native talked about the rejection he felt as a teenager due to his speech impediment and severe acne. This man, whose name was spelled incorrectly in his high school yearbook from Pocahontas High School, talked of the years he spent watching everyone else get theirs and decided, it's my turn to have mine now. But it's more than that, Rothschild said. Hansen is a hunter, a bowman who's won awards for stalking caribou, bears, and doll sheep. He relished the power he has over animals and people he deemed lower than himself. It was all a game to him, done for the thrill. The paper also outlined how Hansen did it, saying he would meet a prostitute or dancer and make a deal for sex. Once in his car, Hansen said it was almost a reflex action for him to grab the back of the woman's head with one hand while reaching under the seat for a gun with the other. He would hold the gun on her head and threaten to kill her if she didn't do everything he said. And then he took her to a remote area for sex. As long as she would go along with what I wanted out there, okay, we'd go home and that was it, Hansen said in a confession to prosecutors and troopers. And if they didn't, Trooper Glenn Froth asked, they, they stayed, Hansen said. Hansen by day was a local baker selling you donuts and by night was, according to Rothschild, the most prolific mass murderer in modern Alaskan history. Oh, the strength I gather with all those lessons learned With the crazy long life that I lived already And the scars I earned I still can't seem to find the answers And though the questions I never knew But loving you just once was worth it Serial killers get lots of attention and steal headlines. But the reality is that we are awash in violence in our culture. In 2017, that reality was all too clear to Anchorage residents. 2017 was the deadliest year in Anchorage history, with a record 37 murders in the city. The record was striking, and more striking was that it was replacing the previous high from just one year before. In 2016, former police chief Mark Mew was quoted as saying, the homicide rate in Anchorage has always run between 12 and 24. That was sort of the rule of thumb. We rarely did better than 12, and we rarely did worse than twice that. The Alaska Dispatch News said of the murders, for many, it was the year the city's violence hit home, even if they didn't personally know any of the victims. The killings happened in nearly every corner of Anchorage, from an Eagle River apartment complex to a normally quiet Southside subdivision. People were shot to death at a gas station, in a beloved park in the heart of the city, and on a scenic beach where people go to look at the mountains. In September, the death of a man in the middle of a busy intersection shut down an elementary school and middle school while police investigated the killing. 
Together, the homicides pose a question for Anchorage. What made 2016 so deadly? There weren't many answers, and in 2017, the murder numbers went up. It baffled one police detective, who, when asked why was 2017 so violent, remarked, I wish I knew. I really don't have an answer. We were surprised by 2016 and this year. Each year I'm hoping that the next year the numbers will drop. A 2017 Anchorage Daily News poll showed that 71.1% of Anchorage residents viewed crime as higher in the past year. Clearly, crime and violence were a big story in 2016 and 2017 and an issue on the mind of many of the city's residents. Frankly, I'm not sure that all that much has changed. The murder rate has been lower in recent years, but not that much lower. And the Daily News reported just last month that the new state data shows Alaska's overall crime rate continues to fall, but some forms of violent crime, including murder, are up. And added, Alaska's violent crime rate remains far above the national average. In light of Alaska's current violent reality and its long history of violence, we could just throw our hands up in the air and give up. But that's not what we're doing. Instead, we're asking, what is possible? Join me on our next episode when I'll be talking with Crystal Komkoff about what is possible in the area of healing from violence. Until next time, I'm Joel Kiekenfeld. Be good out there. Thank you so much for listening. We're grateful for you, our listeners. If you are grateful for what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen, and recommend us to your friends. Those are small things, but they make a huge difference. The Anchored City Podcast is a production of the Anchorage Urban Training Collaborative. The mission of the collaborative is to train the heads, hearts, and hands of urban leaders to love their city and seek its peace. When we say peace, we mean a desire to see a world where all things are the way they're supposed to be for all people. Find us online at anchorageutc.org or on social media at anchorageutc. Resources used to make this episode can be found in the show details. Our theme music is by Anchorage's own Monica Lettner.